I'm 11 years old again. And that in mo- so much of the attraction, I think, of sports to older dudes like myself or other dudes like you that aren't as old as me is that sort of connection to childhood, connection to memories, and this sense of history unfolding and the continuity that that brings to, to a life. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Wayne Parrish, the owner of The Sport Collection, one of the largest collections of sports photography and magazine covers representing five decades of behind-the-scenes sports history. During his illustrious career as a sports journalist, Wayne was also the CEO of Canada Basketball and a director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation. Wayne and his partners have amassed more than 150,000 sports-related images that share a unique perspective on the lives of elite athletes on and off the field, as well as highlighting the social issues of the time in a way that only sports can. Wayne and his partner, Mark Appleman, approached ExitWise looking for help to find the next steward of this unrivaled piece of sports history, and we gladly obliged. In our conversation, you'll hear the passion Wayne has for this historic collection, and you'll see a sense of how intertwined sports and social issues can be, and how a photographic reference can be an amazing piece of our collective history. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Wayne Parrish. Wayne, uh, thank you for being here. I've been really excited to chat with you. You know, we got to know each other over the last couple of months because you and your partner, Mark, came to us and you had this incredible asset, frankly, that is kind of this historical guide through uh, sports, through photography. And you came to us thinking, hey, what is this collection worth? Are there buyers for this type of collection? Uh, You had a lot of different business models that you could enable through these assets. And although not our typical kind of straight M&A process, we got just so fascinated with the collection that we really wanted to help. And so getting you on today, I think our listeners are going to find the story fascinating of your background and how you came to be the owner of the sport collection, right? So thanks, thanks for being here and doing this. It's so wonderful to be here, Todd. Uh, I'm looking really forward to it. Why don't we start with your background, obviously as a journalist, but you know, really, where did you start before the sport collection was a thing? So, Todd, I mean, I I have a varied background, which is, as my as my late father used to say, that just means you can't keep a job, right? But the reality is, is that I've had the the privilege of enjoying many careers. I am Canadian and have always lived in Canada, although much of my work over the years has been done in the U.S. and around the world. But but I'm still based in Canada today, and um, I started out life as a science major in university. But somewhere along the way, I was seduced by both sports, that happened quite young, and media, and that happened quite young as well. And so when I was in university, I needed to make some money to make ends meet and be able to pay my tuition. And so there was a job advertised at the local daily newspaper in Vancouver, where I grew up, to cover university news, which was big in the 70s, back back in my day, and university sports. And so I inquired about the job. I pursued it quite heavily. And eventually I got a call from the sports editor of the newspaper who said, we need someone to cover 
the University of BC football game. And the University of BC, for those of your viewers who probably don't know the Canadian college landscape, is one of the biggest schools in Canada, probably one of the top three or four, and it's globally ranked among the top 50, 60 in the world. But it has had then a terrible, terrible football team. And so I was paid $5 to go out and cover the first UBC football game of that particular season. And I fell in love with everything about journalism, or my love of everything journalistic and sports-wise kind of coalesced in that moment. And I just went head over heels. And although I continued to attend university for many years, I really put my energies into media, newspapers, and writing. I was a journalist for several years, but I eventually moved to the media, to the business side of media. I've run a number of different uh, significant media companies in Canada. I've overseen digital publications and, and launched many digital publications and companies in Canada. And I also spent about a 15-year run with Canada Basketball, which is our equivalent of your USA Basketball. So I, I'm not putting myself anywhere near his level. But so Jerry Colangelo, when he was running USA Basketball and I were sort of really good colleagues and pals. And so I was, I often shorthanded myself at that point as, think of me as the Jerry Colangelo of Canada. Now his son, Brian, was running the Raptors at the time. So I think Brian would have taken some umbrage with that, but nonetheless. And so I did that for, I was CEO and then chair of the board. And I only stepped down two years ago as chair of the board of Canada Basketball. And as you probably know, Todd, our Olympic teams, the men's or the women's initially, and now the men's, have really come of age. And just a few weeks ago, our Canadian men beat your American men for the bronze medal game. And I flipped Jerry a note and said, hey, your prophecy of 15 years ago came true. And sure enough, it did, because in, in 2008, when we were in the middle of a, an exhibition game in Las Vegas at the Thomas Mack Arena, Jerry and I were standing alone underneath the backboard, and he turned to me and he said, Wayne, I envy you. And I looked at him. I looked at the scoreboard. The game finished up 120 to 65 for U.S. <laughs> over Canada. I looked at him. I looked at the scoreboard. And I said, Jerry, are you absolutely nuts? And he said, yeah. no, Wayne, what I, what I really envy you for is the talent that is developing in Canada. And he knew it because Brian, his son, had been the general manager of the Raptors for two years at that point. And he had conveyed to Jerry what was happening. So from that time, when I started with Canada Basketball, we had two players in the NBA. The camps that started, or when the regular season started last week, there were 27 Canadians on NBA rosters. And that's a growth story that I'm quite excited about, but it's way away from where you were directing me, which was the sport collection and so on. So I turn it back to you to get me back on track. Yeah, Wayne, that's awesome, though. I think people love hearing like where this all came from. And it started out with trying to make $5 covering one, one terrible football team to <laughs> running can basketball for Canada. That's yeah. fantastic. And, yeah. and, the, and the results that you've had really speak for themselves. So obviously, as a lover of sports and a journalist, you start coming across some of these amazing assets. And I don't want to give away quite how big it is and um, the, kind of the, the value yet, but please it, it, tell me where sure. it all started. So as I mentioned, I moved from sort of being a journalist to overseeing media entities and then media companies. And in the late uh, 1990s, a group of us 
did a leverage management buyout of our media company from the owners. The owners were the largest cable company in Canada at the time, Rogers Communications. They still are today. We did a leverage buyout, where we, which at that time was the largest management le- leverage buyout in Canadian corporate history. And, and we did some other things. I led some external acquisitions, IPO. It's, we IPO'd the company, et cetera. And then we were sort of taken out in a hostile takeover. I stayed on with our white knight that we brought in for a year or so running their digital operations. But then I thought, you know, all the things I've learned, I'd love to try something else. So we were looking around. I was looking around with some partners at the time for an acquisition possibility. And we wound up going to a company that was based in Britain at the time, which is a magazine company. And among the assets it had acquired was Sport Magazine and Inside Sports Magazine. And for many of your viewers and listeners, Todd, they won't recall the, the nature of media in the 80s and 90s, but, but I can shorthand it by saying that magazines were still, and sports magazines particularly, but magazines were still kind of a very high echelon in terms of sports coverage and, and just how people across America understood what was going on in the broader scope beyond their local home teams in each of the major sports or the minor sports as well. And so in that time frame, the there were, well, if I go back to the late 90s, there were three magazines. Sports Illustrated was number one. Sport Magazine was number two. And there was a magazine called Inside Sports, which was number three. The interesting thing about that is that Sport had actually predated Sports Illustrated. Sport was launched in 1946. Mm-hmm. Sports Illustrated came along eight years later. And actually, many of the ideas that are given for which Sports Illustrated is given credit were initially pioneered by Sport Magazine. But it was a small company. It was owned by a small company, whereas Sports Illustrated was owned by Time Inc. So from the call it the early 50s on, there was this sort of continued growth of sport magazine, but Sports Illustrated sort of started lower and then eventually passed it. So by the late 90s, Sports Illustrated was clearly number one. Sport was number two, but ESPN was about to launch ESPN, the magazine, coming into the market. And the guys at Sport, which had now been sold to a British magazine company, said, oh, my God, what are we going to do? They went out and bought Inside Sports magazine, so they leapt back into close to Sports Illustrated in terms of circulation. But what they did in order to fight off ESPN, the magazine, is they kind of blew their brains out in terms of putting copies out there for distribution. Remember, this is back in the... The internet had, had launched and was and the World Wide Web was there, but this is still when print was big. Sure. So they flooded the market with magazines, and they got into financial trouble very quickly. So we, our team heard about the asset that was available, which was the combination of sports and inside sports magazine, and we began talking to the owners, which was EMAP PLC in Britain. As we understood it over the course of those negotiations, there were two other players at the table. One was ESPN, because they were interested in the asset, perhaps to fold it in, probably to fold it into ESPN, the magazine. There was one other private equity player, and we were a private equity player as well. In the end, none of us would meet the price that EMAP PLC was looking for, and they made the decision within two to three months of none of us meeting the price that they were going to close the magazine down. They announced this in roughly June, and they closed the magazine in August. But we had spent a lot of time in our due diligence in New York and Los Angeles at the offices, 
And in that process, we had begun to go through the archives. And the part of the archive that was most significant in our minds from very early on was this incredibly rich, deep photographic archive. And at the time, I was working with a, a couple of colleagues, working on the front lines with a couple of colleagues on this project, who both, like me, and like Mark Appleman, my partner of today, were sports writers in former lives. And so we kind of would go down to L.A. to do due diligence, and we would go to the business meetings and go through all that. But then we would say, okay, we're, we'd like to take a look at the archive, and we'd go bury ourselves and get lost in this incredible trove in the back room for the rest of the day. I bet. So uh, once EMAP PLC made the decision they were going to close the magazine, the other two would-be suitors stepped away from the table and looked at, began to look at other operating magazines for us. Although we had planned to relaunch the magazine, this wasn't as much of a deterrent because we were not going to do a mass two and a half, three million circulation magazine as sport was. We were going to do something more finite, focused on what we thought of as classic sports. And this archive seemed to be such a wonderful baseline. So we wound up continuing to talk to them. And a few months later, we did what was initially a licensing deal and then a purchase deal for the archive. So long-winded story, but that's how we wound up taking what was at the time, and I believe still is today, one of the most significant collections of images related to 20th century sport anywhere in the world, and wound up taking it from office buildings in in Los Angeles and New York and landing originally in Van, initially in Vancouver and then eventually in Toronto, where it still resides today. Now, is that the full 150,000 images that we're talking about? Yeah, it's actually yeah, a little yeah. more than that, but we okay. have never, Todd, we have, we have never gone through and counted them. We, yep. have, uh, we have estimated, and we certainly had, when we did the acquisition, we had numbers involved, et cetera, et cetera, but it's an incredibly deep archive. But because so many of the shoots, the individual photographic shoots that a photographer would shoot on June the 14th, 1957, have never seen the light of day, We've never gone in and actually counted one by one how many, but it's in the range. It's between 150,000, 200,000, we believe. Yeah. And again, it has it covers this period of sport between the 40s, and some of it goes back to the 30s, predating the launch of the magazine, but from the time of the magazine's launch in 46 through 2000. And it's just, it's got a great breadth and depth of content. And for people like myself, like Mark Appleman, my partner today, there's just an enormous fascination attached to that. And for me, I mean, I grew up essentially in sport in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and then I covered it in the 70s, 80s, and 90s before turning the business side. All of the great athletes, I would almost say globally, although this, the international aspect of it is not quite as well developed as the North American aspect, but are represented there. So it's just like a, I'm still like a, an 11-year-old kid sometimes when I walk into the archive room on a quiet, rainy November morning and sort of think, okay, I'm going to go and look and see if we have anything on this individual. I go yeah. and open up a file and I come across this sort of set of slides from a particular shoot of... Pete Rose sliding into sliding into second base that it's just I, I mean I put it on the light table I start going through it and I'm just I mean I'm 11 years old again and yep. that in mo is so much of the attraction I think of sports to 
older dudes like myself or other dudes like you that aren't as old as me is that sort of connection to childhood, connection to memories and this sense of history unfolding and the continuity that that brings to a life. Yeah, you're not alone. I, this is one of the reasons we tried to take on this assignment or, or help out is that you just create an emotional connection with some of these photographs. And it's not just the, the hero shot, right? Somebody standing there holding the bat after, you know, winning some big, you know, winning the World Series. It, it's a, a photographic collection of almost behind the scenes, right? Seeing Muhammad Ali in between interviews, uh, or Billie Jean King, you know, behind the scenes at some gala. It was just incredible. Like the history of what a sport really is and the lives of these people just come to life. And, you know, for me, you could tell, right, I was incredibly moved. And you do have some of those hero shots, Gordie Howe slamming somebody in, into the boards where it's a chain link fence instead of glass. Um, <laughs> those are there. But boy, it, it is really interesting to look back into the lives of these athletes through this collection. Now, in addition to all of those original photographs, you have the magazine covers as well, right? Because I was familiar with Sport Magazine. I was reading that in the 80s and the 90s. And, and you have over 600, right? 600 actual covers yeah. as part of this collection. And those are just beautiful. Like Bo Jackson, that's one of my favorites. And as a baseball player, I think he, he's on a cover. So was that part of that initial acquisition? It, it was. It was, uh -huh. Todd. But it's funny. It, it wasn't a focus. Uh, of our, It wasn't part of our focus at the time because it was kind of one of those ancillary things that you think, eh, that's kind of cool. And where it really came to life was on the walls of the sport offices in, in Manhattan. There were all of these old covers in in canvas or or, or prints on the walls, and uh, one of the things that we acquired with the collection was all of the prints that they had done internally, and there were over a hundred and fifty frame prints that we that we we received as well as part of this, and and looking at those and those that had had hung on the walls of Sport Magazine going back, I, I believe to the fifties, but certainly certainly to the to the late 50s but i believe to the early 50s and maybe even the late 40s that was really cool the other thing this is really apropos of the point the observation you made a moment ago which i think was a very prescient one and that is when you talked about the non-hero shots if you will because sport was as i said i said earlier sport started it was launched in 46 and si came along in 54 eight years later but what sport became more and more known for through the 50s, the 60s, and into the 70s was its social consciousness around sport, and particularly in terms of the respect, development, evolution of the black athlete, the emergence of women in sport, the issues around is boxing, do the bo rules of boxing have to change after, you know, there were, as there were at the time, occasional deaths and so on. And all of that social consciousness of sport played out in the pages of Sport Magazine. So as they went out to illustrate articles that they were writing, they would try and find images and would shoot images that were attached to that. And I, I remember one of my greatest joys one, one day was when I was going through a, and, and because everything, you know, is either in slide format, but prior to that, a lot of the black and white is in negatives, so mm -hmm. it, it's not easy to 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 look at them and understand exactly what they are at first glance on a light table. But I was going through and I, and I came across a file 
that was just a, a tennis miscellaneous file. And by the way, one of the challenges that we had when we acquired the archive, it probably took us a good six to eight years in the beginning to begin to organize it in a way that it was even accessible. The reason for that is that between its launch in 1946 and when we acquired the, all of the rights in 2000, there were 10 different owners of the publication. And that meant that the assets of the publication, including the archive, would move from office to office to company to company. And along the way, it was not always treated with the, the kid gloves and tender loving care that assets of this, sure. of this caliber should be. And so we had, in fact, I remember when it arrived in Vancouver, the, the, one of the shipments arrived in Vancouver, there were literally boxes that had negatives without any identification and not even in envelopes. And stacked on top of them were staplers and business files and pencils. And it was just unbelievable. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time just sorting out what the images were. And we never did. We, did, we have not completed that process to today. But the one I was, I, I got off my own track. The one I was going to tell you about was I was going through a, a random sort of miscellaneous tennis file one day. It was just a shot that I could see in, a, in a, what appeared to be a black and white negative of a bunch of people sitting around a table. And I thought, this is, this is weird. I don't get this. I kept looking further, and I would go into other files of tennis players, individual players, and I finally found a color negative of the same thing. Eventually, we printed it. I start, we blew it up, and we started looking. And what it was, it was a bunch of tennis players, male tennis players, sitting around a picnic table at Forest Hill in the off day of the U.S. Open in 1958. And just seeing that who's who of the greatest yeah. tennis players in history to that point, just casually sit, hanging out in their short shorts, white short shorts, yeah. Uh, yeah. at Forest Hill that afternoon. I mean, that. It, so it was little little moments like that that have really galvanized this energy and the effort that we brought to bear over the last many years and and that we still bring to bear today in the various projects that we uh, that we work with that's so interesting right i you know i grew up in a tennis family and my dad won the us open three times twice with billie jean king once with a woman named P patty hogan and it was a pre-open era and you just got the sense growing up that the sports were not as commercialized, right? So, you know, he'd he'd go play in some tournament and and he'd go to a restaurant and Rod Laver would be like, hey, Sully, come sit with us. And it was just a community, right, where yeah. they competed. They just loved the sport. It was very hard to make money doing it. And, you know, even with hockey, which was really ended up being my sport, you know, we would have Johnny Busick and, and Bobby Orr coming over to our house and again, it was just like athletes respecting athletes, and you just got to see the, the the inside of life, not just what you see on a screen or at a game. That you know the heroes that we look up today. And I think that the, the what resonated so much with me is this collection took me back into that time period, not only kind of revealing social issues, but just looking at sports and the athletes in a, in a slightly different way, in a way that's just uh, totally respectful. They're yeah, they're really they're people. people. I, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, the unfortunate thing today, Todd, I think is that, and this is, 
this is across the board in terms of celebrity, but the only part of athletes that we see like that. Now, we do see through social media today, much more of them is is out there for their fans and the world at large to see. But we also know that a lot of that is is not as genuine, perhaps, as if the athlete were always doing it himself. Certainly, many of the athletes do, but but some have teams that work on those kinds of things. But that access to the athletes that, that certain people had back in the days that you're talking about, that doesn't exist today. And so you feel that the action and the athletes were much closer at hand in though in that era. And I believe that that's true. And, and reaching into this, you know, this collection on a regular basis, daily, weekly, et cetera, et cetera, you just, you get very much that sense. So I think you're absolutely right. So Wayne, you know, this is just an amazing collection and it must be something that is hard to part with, frankly, right? I have so much emotion just looking through some of the photographs, the negatives, the the covers are amazing. What What's your dream as this collection ends up in someone else's hands? Who is the best person to kind of take this take this collection on? Or, or maybe it's more than a person. What do you think is the best next place for it? Todd, it certainly could be more than a person, uh, to your point. It's interesting because, you know, we, we think in terms of collections like this, going to, you know, high-end collectors of, you know, photographs, historic photographs, also high-end collectors of sports memorabilia. But it's interesting because this collection spans both those worlds so completely. And, but it does something else as well. There is a significant business opportunity attached to this. And we have had a tremendously positive experience and, and frankly, a good time over the last couple of decades in, in working with this. But we have barely scratched the surface. We originally thought that there were as many as five or six different platforms that you, that you could extend this collection and, indeed, the history of Sport Magazine along. And you look at the digital realm today and the opportunity, as so many other publications have faded and dropped by the wayside, both print publications, but also really high-quality digital sports publications. You look at what other ones have come into the field and been able to do, like The Athletic, which, of course, is now owned by The New York Times. But there's a tremendous backdrop in history here that affords many business opportunities, both for the photographic archive and the images archive, but also for the archive of sport writ large. Sport was the initial sports publication that sort of spanned across North America. And it's the, the idea that it, it's a, an entrepreneur that has that is a collector that perhaps has a, has a decently high net worth that's interested in moving into media or connected fields in the digital realm, I think that could be the best opportunity. You know, we've had, we've been able to publish books attached to the archive. We've been able to publish magazines attached to the archive. We have, we've been able to have retail outlets. At one point we had galleries in, in New York and Boston, but there's so much more that can be done with the right, in the right hands. Over the years, it's also because of the historical significance of the archive, there is a, a real opportunity, we think, particularly in the U.S., and as you recall, I, I'm based in Canada, but in the U.S., to connect with a museum or a um, 
someone along the lines of the Library of Congress, et cetera, that would recognize and understand the historical value of this archive. There is no archive that we're aware of that has the same historical impact covering sports across North America in the 20th century. And, and there's some incredible value, both intrinsic and real, attached to all of that. Wayne, are there any favorites of yours, images or negatives, something that kind of really brings you back that you know has just been very special to you over time? There are so many, Todd. It's difficult to remember them all, but there have been many days. And I, by that, I mean over a period of a couple of decades, there have been many individual days that I can recall. The first day that we uncovered this strip of film, actually, shot of a, a Notre Dame practice in 1948 in color. That was just just incredible to us. There's a uh, there's an old timers game at uh, Yankee Stadium in 1966 or 67 that had negatives that are that have never been printed even that we just looked at in terms of a negative viewer. Of, of Casey Stengel and, and Mickey Mantle and so on are, are phenomenal. There's a wonderful little shoot of Robert Kennedy and Mickey Mantle shot in 65, 66 at Yankee Stadium. Um, but I think my personal favorites have, have become the shoots of major fighters in the late 1940s. And these shoots were done on big five by seven uh, color graphic uh, cameras and, and, and images. And so they're full color, incredible richness of color. And they're shot in a gym when the fighter was training. And so whether it was Joe Lewis or Rocky Graziano or Willie Pep, et cetera, or Jake LaMotta, I mean, the, the, the quality of the images, and there is no other color from that period of time anywhere in extends in the world that we're aware of. And so I think those that series of shoots, there's probably about 20 of them, are just have become my personal favorites. And I often just when I'm when I'm working of a day and I, I go in and I dig those out of the archive and I put them on the light table and look at them and and there's just something that takes you back to a different time and place, a place that connects to today in terms of what sport has become. But when sport in its full form of the, the economic engine it is today was in the very beginning, its very nascent stages. And I think that connectivity from the 40s through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and right up to today, I think is what really is the treasure and the strength of the archive. And it's what I connect to but that series of, of shoots is probably my absolute favorite. Wayne, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. This has been awesome. You know how much I am into this collection and it's moving. It's educational. I'm frankly jealous of the, of the next person or team or group that ends up being the steward of this amazing piece of sports history. Just for our listeners, if you are interested or you know somebody that might be interested in learning more about the sport collection, please email me at todd at exitwise.com. And uh, thanks again. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.